drive is recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, the traditional custodians of this land, and we pay our respects to the elders past, present and emerging. Hi, I'm Georgie Gardner and welcome to Drive, a future women podcast about women on their way. This episode is brought to you by Uber Eats, where safety is a top priority. From ongoing delivery partner education programs to contactless delivery, safety never stops. Each week, I speak to accomplished and interesting women about their enviable careers, as well as how they manage to make time and space for themselves. From work and life advice to travel and wellness tips, I find out what engages them and, where possible, pass on their shortcuts. How many hours a year do you reckon you spend at work? According to the latest statistics, the average person clocks up 40 hours a week, and that equates to around 2,000 hours a year. But of course, realistically, it's more than that, given our around-the-clock availability and the work expectations that come with that. So safe to say, then, that for many of us, work takes up the majority of our time. So what is that time, your time, worth? When it comes to knowing our worth, we are often quite ignorant, which brings the real risk of not being paid what we're worth. When an employee is lacking the information of what they should be earning, they are clearly disadvantaged when it comes to negotiating a salary or asking for that pay rise. Now, the process of talking about money, therefore, becomes daunting and uncomfortable Little wonder we put off having such discussions and it's inevitable that resentment starts to creep in. After a career spanning close to 30 years and having psyched myself up for countless contract negotiations, what I've come to realise is that it's crucial to understand your value. And by that, I mean the attributes you bring as an individual and the difference you make to a business as an employee. And I reckon that when you know your value, you have the confidence to negotiate your salary based on your knowledge and your skills and your years of experience. It also gives you and your employer boundaries to work within. My guest today is an entrepreneur who is really passionate about helping women know their worth and reach their goals both professionally and personally. Her desire to empower women comes from a very personal place. Shivani Gopal, welcome to Drive. Oh, goodness. It is so wonderful to be here with you, Georgie. Thank you for having me. It's my great pleasure. Now, you were brought up in Sydney in a loving family, from what I can gather, but you knew from a young age that there were very strong expectations for you to be a, quote, good Indian girl. Just elaborate on what you mean by that. Oh, yes. And when I knew from a young age, I think I knew from the moment that I could hear, speak and understand, from the moment my consciousness was operating, I knew that. And and a good Indian girl in Hindi terms is called Larki Jath. And a Larki Jath 
means that there are things that you can and cannot do. So someone who belongs to the Lerki Jath, and Georgia, you're probably wondering what that actually means. It's someone who belongs to the girl caste. And the girl caste isn't a concept that we you know, as patriotic Australians, as Westerners would think really applies to us. But when I tell you this meaning, you know, you tell me if you think that we have some of this that applies to us subtly or in the shadows. A Lerki Jath is someone who is supposed to be nice and to be kind and to always serve men in many ways. She is supposed to be sweet. She's supposed to be well-educated, well-dressed, never have a boyfriend because, you know, heaven forbid society find out about it, but definitely get married at the right age to the right man, do the right degree and have the right job. So all of these things apply to the Lerki Jath, which therefore apply to me. And I always thought it was just me. But then you go out and you realise that in, in corporate world, there are so many things that women can and cannot do, not because we can't by way of law. I mean, of course, we know that we can do anything, but we're punished for it, aren't we, in so many other ways, whether it be subtle law or, uh, or not. You describe yourself as a rebellious teenager and you had this secret boyfriend. Tell us what happened when your parents found out that you'd been going out with him. It was like the Indian network just fired up, Georgie. I remember when I first got sprung because I was on an escalator going up and I was leaning on my boyfriend's shoulder as you do. And coming down the escalator was my auntie and uncle. And it was like, you know, I was a deer frozen in headlights and we're just approaching each other. And I'm thinking, do I run away? Is it obvious? (laughs) Do I bolt up these escalators and pretend that I don't know this guy that was right behind me? And so I knew that things were going to change. And by the time I got home, the news had already gotten back to them quicker than, you know, dial up internet back in those days. Because the Indian network works very, very fast. Let me tell you that. Oh. And uh, and I knew that my life was going to change. And and the funny thing is, I thought I was going to come home to, you know, you've been a terrible girl, you've um, disgraced the family, and um, you need to break up with this guy before anyone hears about it. Now, unfortunately or fortunately for me, depending on which way you look at it, he came from a really good Indian family, which the Indian network found out, you know, for me or for my parents. And so therefore he was quite a catch. So his family and our family ended up getting together and, you know, talking about what I thought would be almost consent of us being in a relationship. And to be honest, Georgie, you know, lying is exhausting. Pretending that you don't have a boyfriend is exhausting. Mm. If I want anything for anyone, it's just to be your authentic self with the people that you know and love, right? And so when you go to the movies and you tell your parents that you're going with your best friend, it really did kill a little part of me. So I was really happy to know that my parents knew and his parents knew and we were just going to, you know, be out in the open. But instead, what ended up happening essentially was there was a horseshoe shaped chair arrangement that was done. And we were sitting there and I remember just looking at the floor as our futures were decided for us. And it was decided that we were going to be married. And you were how old? Back then, I was probably, I had just turned 17. Wow. And how old was he? He would have been 21, 22. Okay. So you're sitting there in your family room at home and basically the two sets of parents are determining that you will have to get married. Yes. And and this is the thing that I want to point out, Georgie. They didn't decide it because they were trying to ruin our lives. No. They decided it because they thought it was the right thing to do because it confined with the norms in which they live in. It confined in which society is happy with. Mm. And 
I think there's some really strong parallels that we can draw with this, right? Why is it that so many women accept a fate because they think it's okay? Um, You know, maybe I will work part-time because my husband earns more. You know, maybe I will take a step back because someone made a snide remark at me because I don't want to rock the boat. You know, all my parents were doing was not wanting to rock the boat when it came to society. Mm. And that's why it's so important that we challenge so-called norms because they're not right for us. And it certainly wasn't right for me. And I mean, of course, I ended up getting divorced a couple of years later, which we'll get to in just a minute, but just going to that decision, did you protest? Did you, how did you respond to that? I I didn't. And I didn't because I was the rebellious girl, the one who was constantly lying about having a boyfriend. You know, there were so many close escapes. There were so many, um, are you sure you went with this person? Because I saw her at, you know, the shopping centre and you weren't there and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And I was exhausted from all of that. And I just wanted to be the good girl again. I wanted to be accepted by my family and I wanted to be accepted by this norm, by my own culture. And being a good girl was a very, very big part of that. plus, I mean, he was my boyfriend. It wasn't like I was being, you know, dragged across the street, you know, to marry an absolute stranger, stranger. or anything. No. So I instead was thinking, how do I make this work? I've always been a fiercely ambitious girl and now ambitious woman. And so I had always known that I wanted to be financially independent. And I had goals, Georgie, I still do. But my goals were I'm going to buy a house before I get married. And I'm going to get married at 23, 24 back then. That was my sort of goal. And so I'm thinking, right, well, how do I do this? How do I quickly earn some money? How do I, can I buy a house? Can I do that? And I'm racing through in my mind as a 17-year-old girl how to fulfill some of these goals to make that happen. So no, I didn't fight it. I was finding a way to survive and to still keep a shred of my identity. Mm. And to keep those dreams alive and keep that ambition burning. Yes. And so there you go, you get married and it's not an unhappy marriage. However, it's not right for you. And you you make that decision that you have to get out yeah. of that marriage. But you know in doing so, you risk losing your family, your friends, your community. I mean, divorce is taboo, am I right in saying, in Indian culture? I mean, that must have been a terrifying decision to reach. It really was. Someone told me a quote, and it really resonates with me now, and it's, you have survived 100% of the worst things that have happened to you. And I didn't realise it in hindsight, but I think that's what gives me the fuel to keep me going because, Georgie, it was the most terrifying experience of my life. It was soul-destroying. I have never been so empty, so hollow, so depressed, so angry at the world and myself than during that time because I genuinely did think that I would lose my family, my sisters, my friends, because in Indian culture, they call it Sath Janmokasat which basically means for seven lifetimes. You go around the fire seven times, Georgie. You, you, you're married for seven lifetimes. There's a soul unity. And I'm a really soulful person and I'm a romantic person. Goodness, I love love, you know. <laughs> so so I, I really buy into that. Yeah. And the thought of that, letting go of those dreams, right, being in love with the thought of love and the thought of marriage and the thought of seven lifetimes and your soul being united is so beautiful mm. and breaking all of that, but also knowing that you're the first one in your community to ever get divorced. It is not okay. You are seen as a black sheep, not only in your family, but in the community. It's sort of told, well, you'll never get married again, or you'll end up getting married to a second choice or a, you know, because you are almost a, a stain, now. You've got a stain on you. Wow. Yes. It's, it's that pronounced. It, it is that pronounced. Yes. The, the word stain is, is said very often in Hindi. 
goodness. And despite all of that, you made the break. But of course, the only way you were able to do that is because you were well on your way with your career Mm. and you had financial independence. And I think there was a moment where a girlfriend said to you, you won't be able to look after yourself, so therefore you won't be able to leave the marriage. And that was a bit of a light bulb moment for you, wasn't it? It actually was. And I'm so glad she said that. I was on the bus, Georgie, and it was a full bus, obviously way pre-COVID, where everyone's, you know, crammed in. And I just had a moment and I broke and I'm crying on the phone to her. And I'm telling her all my problems, how I'm going to lose everyone, how I'm going to have to move to a more modern country like America, which is pretty hilarious when you say it like that now, right? Um, (laughs) You know, in, in order to finally be accepted and that I couldn't possibly leave. And she, I think, thought, well, let me remind you of one problem that you haven't quite said yet, just so you've, you know, just so you've assessed all your options. And she said, Shivani, how are you possibly even going to afford to leave your husband? A few of my friends have done so and, and they just have no money. How can you afford to leave? And Georgie, I'm not kidding. There was tears and snot all over my face at this point. It was an ugly cry. And I remember when she said that, I literally sucked it all up. It just went, and I went, oh, that's not a problem. I've got my own money. That's the least of my problems. Exactly. And that's when it hit me. When she reminded me of that point as though that would be the clincher, that would be the worst thing that I'd have to get through, it reminded me of the fact that that is the one thing that I've got. I mean, I was a financial advisor. I knew how to manage my own money. I used to advise people who weren't hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars how to manage their own money. I had my own. And I realized that that was the one thing that was going for me. And it was the life raft to my emancipation, to my freedom. The key to freedom. Yes. So... Your career in the finance sector as an advisor and and financial planner was flourishing and you decided you needed some guidance and you sought out a senior peer to be a mentor and he refused. Mm. Why was that? I think he refused and, and I'll tell you what he said so you can make up your own mind, but I think he refused because he was just blatantly sexist. Why I think this is because I feel like I did everything right. I wanted to be the best financial advisor I could ever be. I've always been ambitious. And if you're going to aim for something, aim for the best. You know, and if you don't get there, you'll you'll end up pretty learned anyway, right? So I I wanted to do things wholeheartedly and I decided, well, if I'm going to be the best, I need to learn from the best. I need to be mentored by the best. So I found who was the most successful financial advisor in that company and I did my groundwork, you know, like I found out why he was so successful, some of his best quotes, some of the things that he said and did. And luck was on my side because there was a PD day coming up and this was before GFC. So it was, um, you know, an over night shindig and, you know, wine and, and food, you know, free flowing. And I chose that moment to uh, to go up to him. I asked someone to introduce me to him. His name is not Warren. I'm just going to use Warren, you mm-hmm. know, for the example. But I just said, you know, Warren, I've heard so much about you. I've heard that you are the best in the company, but quite possibly the best in the industry. And, you know, you know your clients' phone numbers off by heart. They invite you to their christenings and their weddings and birthdays. And that tells me that you have that kind of trusted advisor, personal relationship with them. That's what I aspire to. And by then, Georgie, I'd already had my master's degree in commerce, majoring in financial advice. So I was fully fledged advisor by my own right. And I said, but I would love to intern with you. I'd, I'd work after hours. I'll shred your paperwork if I have to, but I'd love just to be around your orbit and just learn from you mm. um, if you could take me under your wing. And I think suffice to say, I made myself as vulnerable as I could in that moment to have him 
swoop me under. And Georgie, he overtly took a step back, folded his arms, looked at me up and down and said, too young, too pretty, come back to me in 10 years' time if you're still around. No. And I'm guessing I can't swear on this podcast. You so can do what you like. Oh, thank you. I just thought in my head, you bloody asshole, and I will show you. I didn't say that out loud because my outer self didn't still have that courage, and, and that's something that you learn and grow and you develop over time. But I just shrunk like a violet and I walked away, but my inner self said that. So you were humiliated. I mean, that would be soul-destroying. You've sought this yeah. man out. You've done all the homework. Yeah. You've, as you say, shown great vulnerability and courage, and that was his response. And it's even more soul-destroying when you realise that a guy that you went to induction with, lovely guy, lovely guy, he and I were great friends, you know, was invited to, to drinks with this guy and was told, you should come hang out with me, you know, you could be my protégé. And so therefore he got that mentoring without even having to ask for it. Mm. And what people don't realise about bias is that people will say, oh, you know, I'm not biased, I'm not sexist, I'm not prejudiced, you know, I, I love people. You just need to accept that you are human and so you like and take people under your wing who you see in your own shadow, Unconscious right? bias. Unconscious bias. And this is why guys get access to that mentoring because – you know, men will see themselves, their younger selves in these guys. And so it just happens naturally. And that's why we as women need to do the same for each other. Well, when you sort out female mentors in your industry, you're again somewhat disheartened because they're all middle-aged and they're all white. Yes. And this is why, you know, Georgie, again, bucking norms is so important and seeing is believing. And fast forward many years, you know, when I first started The Remarkable Woman, I was almost in the shadows, you know, championing other women. And one of my friends said to me, do you know how few brown women there are out there that are succeeding in finance, that are succeeding in business, succeeding in capital raising? You need to get out there, honey, and you need to show that this is you. Mm. And I went, holy moly, you're right. Because even I didn't realise that as a brown woman, brown women need to be out there to be seen to be succeeding mm. because my definition of women success ended up looking like a white woman mm. because there were so few of me out there. And it's for that reason that I think we just need to accept and try harder to get more diversity out of the female leaders that we have in Australia. Even then, there are less than 10% of them that are from a diverse background. So I, I really did struggle to find my own image of success. I heard someone say recently, not only do we need to push women to the front of the queue, but we actually need to push black women and brown women and coloured women to the front of the queue. Yes. And it's up to we white women to really ensure that. Yes. I'm thinking you would be wanting to see a lot more of that. It's one thing for women to support women, but we need to also particularly support women of colour. Yes. We absolutely must. And I get how difficult this concept is because we as women entirely, right, not that we are a minority because we're, you know, approximately 50% of the, of the population, but we are minority by way of disproportionate power, right? We are structurally, economically, culturally, you know, stripped of power in, in many ways, right? Don't hold that power, rather, not stripped of power. We don't hold it. But in addition to that, what we must realise is that privilege and power is nuanced. And white women have more privilege and more power than the women who are of a minority background. And it is for that reason that you must use that for the good. If you want equality, then you must give 
diverse women a greater push so that they have the equity to get equality. And to get that, we've got to look at those positions of leadership. And I know that you say we have to be better at positioning ourselves for leadership roles. Give us a little bit more advice, practical advice on that front in terms of how women or women can get into those roles of leadership where Mm. they are then the decision makers. Mm. First of all, to all women, dare to dream. You know, dare to dream and dream out loud. We as women are cultured, and again, it's, you know, coming back to the Loki Jar thing, we are cultured to be sweet, to be kind, to make everyone happy. And I'll tell you what makes people not so much unhappy, but uncomfortable, especially here in Australia, where we are almost the proud underdogs, right? Um, We don't talk about our goals and dreams because it tends to make other people uncomfortable. Because if they want to rest on their laurels, you're sort of, you know, holding up a mirror to them. So, Chuck that ideology in the bin, all of you, and proudly acknowledge your ambition, talk about it, because it will then, you know, encourage other people to go, go you, sister. I think that's great. And by the way, I've also really wanted to do this. So therefore, you're all talking about it and you realise that it's real. Get an accountability partner and tell someone about it so they can push you to make it happen. And then write it down, make a plan, go and tell someone about it and get some mentors. And what you need to do is you need to be really clear on what key skills and education you need to get there. And then you just need to do the work. And don't be afraid of the work because the universe will test you. The universe will say, are you sure you really want this? Because I'm going to throw every problem in your way to make sure that you really want this. And you just need to keep doing the work to make sure that you get there. And no matter how many times you falter, and I say falter very purposely because we as women, 70% of women, in fact, suffer from imposter syndrome and perfectionism is a very big part of that imposter syndrome. So when you falter, which you will, right? It's a human fact. Men falter too. You will make a mistake. You might make it in public. You might say the wrong thing. You might not be happy and you'll go, I'm not cut out for this. Mm, I'm not worthy. No, I'm not worthy. I have so much self-doubt. I made a mistake. That person pointed out a flaw. That does not define you. It's part of your journey. It's part of your growth journey. Mm. So embrace the mantra of learning and growth in action. Act, revise, amend, act again. It's a loop. It's a circle and it keeps on going and you keep forging that career ahead as a leader. Do not ever give up. If you want to be an entrepreneur, if you want to be the next Melanie uh, Melanie Perkins of Canva, um, I know I do, say it. Mm. There is no shame in that. There ambition is, no is not a dirty word. Ambition is not a dirty word. Mm. Amen. So let's also not forget that some of the onus lies with men. Mm -hmm. A lot of the onus lies with men. We are still experiencing men who are refusing to give up power or who are refusing to change the culture that has benefited them. Indeed. So what do we say to, to men about this? Get real. Embrace the fact that you are human. You do have prejudice. You do have bias. And the way that the system has been set up for centuries has benefited you. And look, there's a lot of really fancy memes going around, right, saying in order to get equality, it doesn't mean you lose your share, it's not pie, right? I love that meme. It's so punchy, but that's actually not true. You do need to give up some of your share in order to give equity, right? You do need to propel more women to the seat. If there are only 10 seats available at the table, then guess what? Five have got to vacate so that five women can get there to get equality. Mm. So yes, you do need to give up some of your pie. 
Yes, you do need to give up some of your share, but you do need to do that if you want future generations to be better off. Because guess what? If women are in the driver's seat, I mean, just look at Jacinda Ardern to start with, but if women are in the driver's seat from a government perspective, but also from a corporate perspective, when you have 50% more female leaders, companies are more profitable, they're more productive, they have better culture and people are happier. One thing that men are very, um, you know, generalising, but but men really get is the commercials around things because they, they're cultured to do so. Mm. Right. So, you know, so talk about the dollars. Talk about where it dings. If you want a more profitable company, you're simply going to need more women involved. So, mm. so talk about the end outcomes. What is it that you truly want? Do you want the power? Do you want the ego? Or do you want a profitable company? Because if that is what you want, or you want a happy company, you want a thriving society, because if that is what you want then let's get there with women. So I think that, you know, I would solve that in ways by asking people what they want. You know, tell me, what is your vision for success? What kind of company, what kind of outcomes do you want? What do you want for your customers? Now let's work through how we get that. Now let's work through the kind of people, the kind of capabilities that we would need to bring on board to get that. Surprise, surprise, that's going to be women. Money talks. Indeed. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back after this message from our partner, Uber Eats. Uber Eats is the perfect companion for Aussies on the go. They're for you at home, at work or on holidays. Uber Eats has more than 20,000 restaurants offering fresh and delicious meals at the click of a button. Thanks to Uber Rewards, more than a million Australians are already earning loyalty points on every order on Uber Eats. Download Uber Eats from the App Store and celebrate local restaurants today or explore the new grocery option to get your essentials without visiting the supermarket. Uber Eats, connecting what matters. Future Women is dedicated to helping women connect, learn and lead. There's a price point to suit most budgets or talk to your company about a corporate training membership to advance your professional development. Just head to futurewomen.com. Welcome back to Drive, where my guest today is Shivani Gopal. Tell us about the time you were licked on the face by a client. Okay. So, horrible memory. Um, I was a BDM, which is short for Business Development Manager, and I had spent a good amount of my time as a financial advisor. I wanted to spread my wings and really be able to share the wisdom of financial advice as much as I could to um, the open market, as they say, of financial advisors, which basically means, you, you know, you're not, um, you're not held to just one financial institution. You can go and, you know, work with them all. And I was networking at a lunch and I've always been really careful of this, Georgie. And I think, again, this is another area where, you know, women are structurally disadvantaged because we must be careful for our own personal safety. There are far too many issues of violence that we, you know, don't need to recount here where women need to be aware of these things. So I, I tend to only go to the daytime networking functions, especially when there's alcohol around. And Is so that right? You make a conscious decision yeah. on that front. Yeah, wow. I, I do. I do. And I do because I, I've been burnt too many times. I, I've been at networking functions where men have been walking towards me and I've been taking a step back. They take a step forward. I take a step back. Eventually I back into a wall. Because they're just walking into my space. And once you back into a wall... There's nowhere to go. Th- there's nowhere to go. And and it's... 
And it's a male-dominated industry. And there's so many men swarming around. And, you know, and, and I hate to say it, but when they get a little bit of alcohol in their system, they think they're invincible and they think, well, the women love them. And oh, come on, we don't. Mm. And so this was happening, but in the daytime. And so I'm standing there with three of my other colleagues and I'm, I'm talking to them. And this one guy comes up and... Um, and he's, he's a client of mine and I know him. And so I'm always very open in my networking. And I say this to women all the time, always network in a semi-circle so that you keep it open for someone else to be brought in. Yes. Because you want to bring in a woman or a man, but you also want that circle to be open so you can come in easily as well, right? Makes sense. So I always network in a semi-circle. So I've left it open and so he walked in. And so I, you know, raise my eyebrows as I do to say, hey, come in and, you know, welcome. But to my horror, he walked in and then he leaned and I thought he was going to kiss me on the cheek, which I'm, again, perfectly fine with. We kiss people on the cheek normally as we do in in networking. But he licked me across the face in what felt like a a ballsy kind of dare. It was like, I'm going to go and do this and I'm guessing she's going to be okay with it. And he chuckled. And it was from the corner of my lip, sort of the the beginning part of my cheek, all the way through to my ear. No. And it was slobbery and it was disgusting. And he was highly chuffed with himself. And the three guys that I with froze and did not know what to do, nor did they do anything. And I froze and I did not know what to do. And I I wish that I had slapped him or said something immediately. And I left. I left the party. I was humiliated. And the next day I walked into my manager's office and I'm someone who is, you know, I pride myself on being, you know, really measured And I wanted to walk in in a really measured way and explain what happened and tell her how unacceptable that was and that action should be taken. Instead, as I'm telling her, the emotion just took over me and I I ended up doing that, that scream cry that you do because you're so angry and you're just talking through the tears and it's, it's like you're gritting your teeth. And I ended up doing that instead. And, you know, she comforted me and she, you know, she agreed it was completely unacceptable. And she said, you know, what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to tell his boss and don't you worry, you don't need to deal with him anymore. We're going to take him off your portfolio. Now, I want everyone to just think about that for a minute. By him being taken off my portfolio means that any business that he writes isn't attributed to me. It means that I have a financial penalty, not him. So ultimately, you're punished. Ultimately, I'm punished. And this is another reason why I say women have the system stacked against them. I'm still just, I'm processing that. To think that there were three men standing there in broad daylight Mm. and not one jumped to your defence or reprimanded him. And it was like 1.30 in the afternoon or something. Do we know whether there was any follow-up with him? No. I never heard about it again. It was actually swept under the carpet. So there was no apology? No apology. Did you consider taking further action? At the time, I didn't. What would you do now, do you think? And it's very easy in hindsight to say, I should have done Mm -hmm. this, I should have done that. But you hear time and time again of women being frozen. Mm. They are so shocked and appalled and sickened and furious it's hard to know what you would do in that situation. Oh, it really is. And you are a strong, assertive, confident woman, which says it all. How dare he? Yeah. For young women listening to this account, is there anything that you could perhaps relay that might help women should they be? Because I guess the point I'm going to make is that Future Women recently spoke to Sex Discrimination Commissioner Kate Jenkins, and she shared the statistic that came out of a 2018 national inquiry which found one in three Australian employees had experienced sexual harassment in the past five years. 
Are we making any real and lasting change on this front? No, we're not. Not not yet. The advice that I have for women is don't get caught up in trying to be a good sport. Don't get caught up in not wanting to ruffle feathers because it is the way that it is. And it's the reason why I am now speaking up. And look, I get it. Georgie, I'm speaking up from the comfort and from the safety of being outside of the industry now. I I now run my own companies. I I run The Remarkable Woman and I run Upstreet. But at the same time, I talk about this, even though it's it's every time I talk about it, you know, my skin just crawls. It's like I'm reliving the experience, but I will talk about it as often as I need to to highlight that this does happen, but also to highlight that when I went public about this, it ended up being, you know, front page news on the SMH and I had no idea that that was going to happen. And the amount of women from the industry who came out to me and said, look, these things happen and sometimes we've got to be a good sport about it. And I said, no, we don't. No, we don't because that is us almost you know, accepting the culture that enables this. That's condoning it. It is. We must rally together. And so if I could change anything, I, I would have taken it further. If I could change anything, I would have been a stronger ambassador for myself so that I could then be a stronger ambassador for others because I don't ever want to go through this again, nor do I want any woman or my future children, my daughters to go through that ever. Through The Remarkable Woman, which I want to talk about now, through this platform, of course, you are making a huge difference. And what you weren't able to do back then you are doing tenfold now through this extraordinary platform, which you founded in 2016. And for listeners who aren't familiar with it, it's aimed at empowering women professionally, personally, and financially. And I'm imagining that it was experiences, life experiences such as that, that really motivated you to get this off the ground Mm. and to get it up and running. Look, it, it really is because... You know, yes, we as women are empowered with, you know, brains, equality, you know, a heartbeat, two arms and two legs, but we are structurally disempowered economically and culturally and socially, politically as well. And when you think about that, you go, hang on a second, this is just not good enough. Women do not get access to the kind of mentoring, the kind of support, the kind of sponsorship that we need or that we would like in order to be our absolute best selves. Because frankly, we owe it to ourselves to pursue our ever growing potential. And we owe it to ourselves to achieve our ambitions and realise our dreams and be financially independent through the knowledge, through the support. And so I decided, you know what, I know a thing or two about money. (laughs) I know how to manage it. I know how to grow and I know how to demystify it. Mm. I don't want it to be this thing that people just know but don't understand. And I don't want leadership to be this thing that you want but you just can't grab. It's just out of your reach. And so I set up The Remarkable Woman so that, you know, you could practically have those mentors and you could have people who would hold your hand and help you become financially empowered because that is structurally how you take back the power. That is how you become empowered as you should be. I know you're passionate about teaching women to really know and understand their worth. Mm. Just give us a little bit more help on, on that front because we're not good at talking about money. A couple of things. Georgie, first of all, thank you for asking such an important topic. We are cultured in Australia especially to uh, not talk about money 
and to fall into the trap that we don't have a class system here and that, you know, we shouldn't talk about money because it's tacky and we're all equals and all that sort of stuff. But we know that we're not. And the great equaliser is financial independence because it gives you the ability to make all the choices that you so deserve. So you must talk about money if you want that equality, and I know you do. So you must tell yourself, you must know in your heart that you are deserving of that. And if you are deserving of that, then you must do the work in order to get it. And what I'm going to say is don't fall into the traps that society will feed you. So this is a really interesting dance that happens, right? As women, we tend not to talk about money. And then when we do, what we end up finding is that the opposite side, whoever you're talking to, will then flop it back. So let's just say, Georgie, you and I are talking about money. We're having a conversation. Let's just say, you know, we'll use this as an example. If I said, hey, I'm, you know, happy to chat, but, you know, I want to be paid 10 grand for the privilege, right? What often happens is that the other side will say, is it all about the money for you? Shivani. Because really, don't you want to help people? Aren't we building this for the greater good? You know, it shouldn't be about the power. It shouldn't be about the money. That is what happens to women time and time again. Whenever you talk about money, whenever you commercialize it, you will find yourself belittled by then saying, let's talk about it universally. We want you to be spiritually aligned. I want to find someone who isn't about, who doesn't want this job for the money. Oh, come on. Who says that to a man? Nobody does. But, you know, I can think of every one of my friends and so many remarkable members who've had this experience. So don't back away from that. And if that happens, you need to be courageous enough. And I know that you are. So I'm going to give you a language framework and that is ask open questions. If they do that, don't buy into it. Take it off the table by going, look, there's some really valid points that you raise. I'm curious. Tell me why you started this company. What are you looking to get out of it? And why is that? And why is that? And why is that? Use the rule of three. Mm. Double down three times. And you'll find it'll still come down to money for them too. And if it comes down to money for them too, then why shouldn't it for you? So turn those tables wherever it comes up. Know that you can ask for your worth by timing it, by monetizing it, by doing the research, by knowing how much your worth should be. You will always be able to get what it is because when you come down to facts, those numbers don't lie. And so therefore you don't get lost into the wishy-washy of things. You don't get drawn into that storm. Shivani, how do you switch off? (laughs) You are one of the most dynamic, energetic, passionate people I know. And I'm wondering how you carve out time just for you. Are you able to find quiet time? Yeah. I think, first of all, you've got to do what you love. And if you do what you love, the work energises you. Coming here and talking to you, Georgie, this is like eating cake. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm having so much fun right now. This is not work. I mean, you can have me here anytime. <laughs> and when something energises you, when something uplifts you, it's like when you're in flow right? You will be your best ever. And there are studies done on this. When you capitalize on your strengths, you'll be 600 times better than anything. And it doesn't feel like work. And so therefore you're not burning energy. But if you're doing the stuff that you don't enjoy, there's plenty of stuff that I don't enjoy. Tell me to do a spreadsheet. Tell me to do admin. Tell me to follow something up and oh, It'll take me 10 times longer than someone else. That drains energy from me. So self-awareness is so important. And I say this because so many people don't do the work to know who they are. 
And I think that's weird because people will be like, well, I've lived with myself for 35 years. I shouldn't know who I am by now. But you don't unless you do the work. You have to be self-aware about Mm. (laughs) self-awareness. So know who you are and do the things that you love so that it doesn't feel like work, so that you get energy from it rather than getting energy away from it. And then know how you need to relax and don't let anyone else tell you otherwise. I could spend hours on end on a Sunday, and this is so embarrassing, but I'm going to say it anyway because I'm all about being yourself, honey. Either Saturday or Sunday, one of those days is my day off. So I work six days a week, one day is a day off, depending on which day it is. And I will sleep and I won't put an alarm on that day. Every other day I wake up at 4am and I'm up and at it. At four? At four. But on my day off, the alarm is not on. I could wake up at 11. I could wake up at 1, whatever time my body lets me. But let's just say I wake up at 11. I won't shower till 1. I will make a point of it. I will be in those jammies (laughs) and I will be on that couch watching Netflix till my heart tells me that I'm done. Then I'll bake because my heart tells me that I want to use my hands. Or I'll go hang out with my mum or my sister. I love that. When restrictions are lifted, where is next on your holiday destination list? Is there a particular place where you can't wait to get to? Yeah, look, I think this time has really grounded me and made me so grateful. Yeah. So grateful. I think that's done done, done that for a lot of people. Yeah. And so I also want to give back. So I'm Fiji and Indian. So I want to go to Fiji first, give back to my beautiful beautiful motherland, as we call it. And then I want to go to India. And so I want to do that so I can give back to those two countries. And then after that, gee, I've got to get myself to Spain and, you know, go on a tapas journey or something like that. I mean, you can't go to Spain right now, obviously. (laughs) Definitely not. Um, You know, when things are all clear, they're they're the places on my hit list. What about a memorable restaurant experience? Have you been anywhere or do you, is, is there a regular spot you like to go to that really ticks all the boxes. Yeah, look, I can't wait for Spice Temple to open again. Those dumplings and that Kung Pao chicken, it just does something for me. It takes me places. So I'm, I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. What about a book? Is there a book that you've read that's made a lasting impression, something that you would highly recommend other people get into? Yeah, look, there's a book called All That I Am by Anna Funda. And oh, I love that book. It's incredible, isn't it's it? It's an extraordinary book. In fact, I want to read it again. Me too. Do you know, I've only ever read one book more than once, and it's The Alchemist by Paolo Coelho. Of course. But All That I Am by Anna Funda, which I think I read about five years ago, I've seen it in the bookshelf only recently, and I thought I'd love to read that book again. Mm. Dora is incredible, you know, as, as a protagonist, and just the way that story is told and her strength, you know, right through to, oh, I don't want to ruin the book for anyone, but right through to the end of that book. Mm. I think about her character so often and I think it drives me. And I'm going to finish with a question I've been asking all my my guests and that is, when are you at your most happiest? Oh, there's so many answers to this. I feel like I have so many variations of happiness. The first one is when I am cuddling my cat, Harry. <laughs> And I'm just kissing him on his nose and just stroking his head or just crawling around like an idiot on the floor with him. You know, you know what? The genuine answer is, I mean, you know, there are some professional answers too, like talking to you, doing, you know, public speaking, uplifting women. You know, that fills me up like a cup and I'm so happy. Shivani Gopal, it's been a massive pleasure to chat with you. Thank you so much for joining me on Drive. Thank you, Georgie. Pleasure was all mine. 
Thank you for listening. Drive is a future women podcast made in partnership with Uber Eats and it's produced by Fancy Films. Make sure you subscribe so you do not miss an episode and we would love it if you could rate and review because that really helps people to find us. I'll be back again next week. Bye for now.